I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season 10 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we are thrilled to be part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This week, we are going to be talking about anxiety and mental strength in young athletes. And so I am so excited to have Dr. Jared Spencer joining us on the pod. I first came across Jared, well, I first came across him several years ago through the Changing the Game Project uh, platform, and most recently heard him being interviewed on the Changing the Game podcast, uh, talking about what happened with Naomi Osaka and press and the French Open and all of those things. And so I reached out to him to see if he would come chat with me and bring his expertise to all of you around anxiety and mental strength. So just to give you a little bit of background, Dr. Spencer is a trained sports psychologist. He runs a company called Mind of the Athlete where he works individually with athletes at all levels, including the professional level, but also works with teams. And he has extensive training and experience in the field of health and sports psych. So um, he's from the Pennsylvania area, stayed close by for his education and is, like I said, now uh, running Mind of the Athlete, working with athletes, helping them manage the different stresses that come with being a competitive athlete at all levels of all sports, including tennis. Dr. Spencer himself was a wrestler and a football player, so a dual sport athlete, though I suspect he's got experience across many, many sports, just having heard him speak. So without further ado, I'm going to unmute Jared and I'm going to bring him on. And Dr. Jared Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My pleasure. Thank you so much for valuing this topic enough to have me part of your podcast. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just taking care of a little housekeeping here. I'm sorry, but um, I, you know, the whole aspect of strength training uh, for the mind has been in the conversation for several years uh, in the tennis realm. And there are lots of experts out there, but it's a real challenge to get especially young players to kind of buy into the idea that not only do they need to work on their forehands, backhands, but they also need to work on their mind. How do we get them to kind of understand why this is such an important piece of the puzzle? I actually see it a little differently than you do. I see it as 
the young athletes are so eager and willing to do this. The reality, if I'm speaking bluntly, it's the parents that are a little over controlling mm-hmm. or maybe want to put a lot of lip service, but not the funding to actually do sports psychology the right way at a very high level. And so you can throw somebody out there, do some mental skills work or something. But quite frankly, there's a lot of people that are unlicensed. And that doesn't mean that they're not good. But this is a mental health crisis that's happened across the world. And we really want to try to put licensed professionals, mental health professionals in front of our young tennis players so that they could have the highest quality of service when it comes to how to manage the emotionality of tennis And to do that, we've got to have the parents say, okay, like, I think I'm going to have my son or daughter work with a sports psychologist and and really do the inside out work, not just the outside in head knowledge. Mm. Um, That's more mental skills stuff, but like really from the inside out. But that means we have to invite somebody into our family dynamics. Whoa, I don't know about that. (laughs) So this is where it gets a little bit tricky. And I see the kids saying yes and the parents saying maybe. Interesting. Very interesting. So let's kind of back up a little bit and talk about what is what has led us to this place of seeing so many athletes really struggle with this notion of, well, it's not even a notion, it is a, an illness or a condition of anxiety, extreme anxiety, that impacts their ability to perform at their highest level, whether that's in their sport, in their social life, in their family life, in their academic life. What got us here? A perfect storm. And I'll explain it to you. Uh, Essentially, what's happened is uh, my generation, um, 47 years old, so my generation, Generation X, uh, parenting, uh, quite frankly, is is wrecked youth sports in America, uh, to put it bluntly. And that may sound harsh and hard, and I'm not uh, using that as a blanket statement for everyone because there's great parents out there as well, but huge hearts, bad heads. And what's happened is we've done everything we possibly can to set our kids up for success, give them every opportunity possible to do that. But in the process, we've overscheduled them and we've overwhelmed them and they're fried. Mm. Uh, they're just go, go, go all the time. Family vacations are based upon where we're going to go play tennis, and yeah. then we'll go. It's vacation for the parents to a certain degree, but the kid never gets off or time down, and so we put high academic pressure on them. <clears throat> and I remember going into my kids' uh, uh, parent-teacher meetings early on in their elementary school, and it's like, oh my gosh, like this is so much more intense than when I went to school, <laughs> and they have all these expectations and these. And I was like, I, you could just feel the intensity in schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, I said earlier about wrecking youth sports. Uh, if you don't believe me, come with me, anybody come with me this weekend to any youth soccer game in America. And you tell me what's happening on the sidelines. Yeah. And it's not the kids. It's the parents. It's the coaches and the emotionality that they're bringing to it as as Susie's dad stands two inches off the side of the field, exactly on the field where Susie's at. And every time the ball comes anywhere near Susie, dad starts yelling, kick it, kick it, kick it. And this eight-year-old's like, oh, like, where were you at practice? Uh, practice is fun. And now game comes and I'm, oh, I'm getting performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's like Pavlov's dog theory. You know, you ring a bell, you show a steak, they salivate. It's like 
you know, you put an eight-year-old out there in the soccer field with the overbearing father figure, typically, and this is what we see. So high anxiety in the classroom, high anxiety with sports going year-round, overextended, and then here's the wild card. 2007, the iPhone gets introduced. Three years later, most people have a smartphone. A few years later, we have social media, and that has created the comparison generation, Hmm. and that is really driving the perfect storm. Let's dive deeper into that whole idea of social media and its impact on our kids and their anxiety levels, because it's funny. I So I have three kids. They're adults now. But so they grew up. Well, my youngest for sure grew up with social media pretty much his whole life. But he does still remember when a phone was just a phone. And every now and then we'll just wipe Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just take the apps off his phone and take a break. And I think that's really healthy, right? He's in his 20s now. Um, But most kids, young kids and teenagers, they really cannot disconnect. I mean, it's social suicide for them, or so they perceive. Well, I I really see it as, and this is something I often talk about in some of my speeches, it's our generation's cigarettes. Yeah. That the addiction we have to social media, the kids in particular have to their phone is equivocal to what 50 years ago was the major addiction of cigarettes. But of course, at that time, doctors would smoke while they're uh, talking to you. Uh, you know, it was never a big deal. It wasn't a problem. Everyone was doing it. People have a cigarette before they fall asleep at night while they're lying in bed. And now it's the same thing with cigarettes, uh, with uh, with uh, cell phones. And right. so that kind of global acceptance that this is just the way it is and it's fine, it's not a problem, is the problem. Why is it the problem? What are the cell phones doing to our kids? Well, the first place we got to start is sleep. And so uh, pre-pandemic, uh, most athletes were getting about six hours of sleep. That's nowhere near where we need it to be. And why is it? Well, one of the big factors is 90% of the people that I poll and my speeches uh, are lying in bed looking at their phone before they fall asleep at night. And consequently, they don't even know what time they would ideally fall asleep anymore. But they're so tired, but they're looking at this uh, social media in particular, which is making them feel more anxious and depressed as they look at everyone's fake, wonderful, perfect life, feeling more depressed about their own. Research shows they feel the more you're on social media, the more depression you actually uh, can experience. And so it's really uh, giving themselves a dose of depression right before they go to bed. But of course, we all know about the blue light blocking the melatonin. That's another major factor. But after a while, if you just do that for since you're eight years old with your smartphone in your bed, 10 years later, you've got a pretty bad problem. Right. So what's the answer? What do we do about it? <laughs> Parents. Because whenever I give this speech uh, and the parents are like, yes, absolutely, they should not have their phones in their beds like that. Okay, parents, how many of you are lying and doing the same thing? 90%, right? So we're talking about like being hypocritical, saying, I don't want my kid doing this, but what are you doing? The same thing. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, seriously, how do we break this cycle? Because... It's not just at night. It's not, you know, it's all day long. They're even when they're in the classroom, their eyes are down, their phones are in their laps under their desks, you know, checking social media. Um, 
when they're at practice, when they're in at games and they're having a break, um, they're on their phones. It's, I mean, and it, it is a necessary and a great tool like most things when used appropriately. Right. Well, of course, but before I get to the solutions, uh, let's, let's, let's up the ante a little bit. Okay. Uh, Everything that I was teaching, preaching, speaking about pre pandemic, most people would say, yes, Jared, that makes sense. That's, and I, as a, as a, as a parent, as a, as a, as a person, as a husband, like, yeah, I, I agree with all this pandemic hits. And now kids are not in school and where's their social life? Well, it's on their phones between 10 PM and 2 AM mm-hmm. where most, you know, uh, 13 to 23 year olds are all interacting on their video game consoles xbox or on their phone and so that goes against everything that i'm saying but at the same time i i have to relax that as well and say i get it if they're not doing that at that window of time then they're not necessarily going to be connecting so it what what was bad went from bad to worse Mm. but we all as parents said okay we understand why it would need to be relaxed because we want our kids to socialize right but therein lies where we just kind of fed the addiction a little bit more. And so as we get closer to a return to normalcy post-pandemic, what we're seeing is a generation that is more dependent on their phone than we've ever seen. And we kind of had to be okay with it because how else were they going to communicate to their peers? Right. Right. It is. I mean, I listen, I see it with myself. I mean, I see it the whole reason we're doing a video interview right now is because during COVID, it was like, this is my way to connect with people. You can at least see my face and my guest face. And, you know, I don't want to just be in your ear. I want to be on your screen too. For sure. And so, okay. So the real question is that like, what do we do about that? Right. Yeah. Like, here we are. Uh, we're recording this here. It's summer 2021. <laughs> We're hoping for a return to normalcy with the fall. And how do we just get the kids to, okay, how do we get the kids basically to decrease their cell phone? But really what we're talking about here is this. If I want to solve the mental health crisis amongst tennis players, mm-hmm. I've got to solve the sleep problem among tennis players. If I can solve the sleep problem among tennis players, I had to deal with the cell phone addiction problem among tennis players, you see? So this is why it's so relevant to our conversation because anxiety is largely driven by the sleep, which is driven by the cell phone. Right. Got it. So the start is the cell phone. Yes. Okay. So assuming that we as parents can limit our kids' cell phone usage, and I know one of the things you talk about is no cell phones in bedrooms, right? Cell phones got to stay elsewhere. Uh, it's okay in the bedroom. It's just not in the bed. Okay. Yeah. So Got it. Um, okay. College student, you know, they live in one room. They just got to be in the room with them. So we want a better habit. Basically, what I say to them is um, you can have it in your bedroom, but not in the bed. So when you hop in the bed, you're going to go to sleep. And so you want to have that strong connection and your brain knows like I'm shutting down. But if you hop in bed with your cell phone, then it's like, well, I know I'm not going to fall asleep right now. I'm going to spend however long on my cell phone. Got so, it. In terms of the first steps, uh, one, no cell phone ever again in the bed. Uh, number two, I want everyone uh, listening 
or watching uh, this interview to pull out their cell phones right now. And I want them to go to settings and then screen time. And I want them to look at like how many hours are they logging today? Uh, how many? And then if you go down the bottom corner there, you can actually see like yesterday, last seven days, average. Like what is the average for you, the listener, of the number of hours that you're on your phone? And what you're probably going to notice is that 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 uh, hours usage is a little bit higher than you thought. Um, just did a speech the other day. Uh, people pulled it out and they're like, oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Five hours. Right. Five hours. Yeah. That's not uncommon. Six hours is not uncommon, even for a parent as well as a teen to be on their phone. Right. Because we're using them for everything. Yeah. But you can even look at this, uh, the breakdowns of yeah. that, and you'll be like, well, an hour and a half of TikTok was a little bit more than I thought, right? Yeah, yeah. How much Netflix and YouTube, right? It's like it'll break it down to entertainment, productivity. I'm just speaking about an iPhone right now. But it's broken down into like, well, was that a phone call? Was that a text message? Right. Was so find out our hours usage, and then I challenge each person to say, how could I significantly decrease that? How can I cut it in half? Like, what do I need to do to somehow take, think about this? Seven, six hours, six hours a day, seven days a week. That's your full-time job that didn't even exist a decade ago. Mm. Like one decade ago, like this was not even a thing. And yet, 42 hours a week later for an elementary school kid, high school kid, and you ask me the question, Lisa, you said at the beginning, why are they so anxious? Yeah. 42, a full-time job looking at what? Right. Like, What's the ideal number, though? Half. I say for anybody, whatever your number is, start with half. Okay. Can we start with half? Like, but that's huge. Right. But we're still saying like, hey, if you're smoking a, a pack of cigarettes a day, can we get down to half a pack? That would be Got a it. start, right? Got it. And so if our, if our analogy is holding up of our generation's form of cigarettes and we're saying, you know, whatever your number is, could you go to half? That would be a huge improvement for the, that individual. Right. Yeah. What is it in particular about the social media piece of cell phone usage that is causing anxiety. And I get the fake life thing and, and all of that, but can we dig a little deeper into that? Like what's happening to our kids' brains when they're looking at this stuff? They're never getting a break. And so I'll explain it from a neuroscience angle. Your nervous system has two parts, sympathetic, which is go, 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 go. It wakes you up in the morning parasympathetic, which is relax, 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 okay? And so what we have is an entire generation where their sympathetic nervous system is just go, go, go all the time. Go to practice, come out of practice, get in the car, get on my phone, brain's going, right? Uh, we don't even know how to relax anymore. You say, okay, go take a break. Okay, that means go on an electronic and their body's relaxing, but the brain is going. Mm. They're playing Xbox. They think they're relaxing, but there's no break. And so we've got to teach them parasympathetic nervous system experiences. 
which is like, you know, classic, most extreme would be meditation. Right. Just, or like, you know, people would lie around the couch, maybe be like, I'm bored. You know, that's a good thing. Boredom breeds creativity. It's also a break for the brain. And so like, we don't really see people taking a break without the stimulation of the brain, which means the parasympathetic nervous system, especially if you're only getting six hours of rest a night, is contributing to the spike in anxiety. That's what's happened on a neuroscience level. Okay. And and looking at the social media, which, you know, we think of, as you said, that's our break. We get on our phone and scroll and, you know, catch up with friends and family and whatever. Um, but you're saying it's it's not a break. It's It's causing this spike in tension, anxiety, stress that is causing all sorts of other issues to crop up in our kids and can even turn into physical illnesses. It, it, it certainly can, but let's just start with the social application because what it's done is it's really hindered an entire generation's social skills. And what's making them feel so anxious is that even when they're out there with their friends one parent's so permissive with the phone instilled really bad habits in that kid. That kid's in the circle. He's with his friends, but the whole time he's on his phone. So what do the other kids feel like doing? Well, I don't, I got, I pull out my phone. So if one kid's like, no, nah, man, I don't really want to be on my phone. I want to look at you. I want to talk to you, but they realize I'm the only guy here that's not on their phone. So I'm going to look at my phone too, because there's nothing else for me to do. Mm. Can go you and me anyway. We can go anywhere we want this weekend where there's teenagers, and this is what we're going to see. Right. I did a little. But it's not just teenagers. My <laughs> son posted something on on Instagram last night that is rather embarrassing. He filmed my husband and me sitting on the sofa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you, me, everybody. Like this is a global systemic problem, right? I, I saw one study that said uh, people have uh, more people have. A, a cell phone than I access to a, a toilet. I mean, this, this is like crazy. What? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the cell phone has become so important. So it's like, I might not own my own toilet, but I have my own cell phone. Wow. Right. And so right. this is a global situation, but it's literally destroying intimacy. And what I mean by intimacy is emotional connectedness. And so marriages are crumbling because two people lie in bed at night, instead of snuggling and talking and debriefing, both are looking at their Facebook, for example. Yeah. Then they put their phones down. Then they get up. And before their feet even hit the floor, they're both back looking at what? Right. Yeah. And so intimacy is being compromised, meaning emotional connectedness between uh, people as spouses, uh, you know, families around the kitchen table and an entire generation of young kids in particular, their emotional connectedness with each other is very much compromised because they can, their socialization skills are, Hey, let me just show you what's on my phone. I'll show you what's on your phone. And then we just talk about that. And then that we call it like we hung out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny to me that texting constitutes, talking to somebody. 
Like, oh yeah, I've been talking to so-and-so. Like you picked up the phone and called them or you saw them face. Oh no, no, no. We've just been texting or DMing or whatever. And yeah. And even texting is like a term for like old people now. It's like, well, we snapped, you know, snapping. So, uh, but absolutely that's, that's the communication. So we're seeing a huge decrease in communication skills. So let's tie this into now sports performance, because if our kids are spending all this time on their phones, you know, parents, that's a whole other issue. And, and I'll let you deal with that in a different platform, but for now, let's focus on the kids. They've got this anxiety that's been building due to the cell phone usage. And now they've got to go out and perform either in a practice setting or in an actual competition. How does all of this stuff that's happening off the court, off the field, impact them once they step foot on the court? Confidence. You know, are you doing the right things or not? And so that's what's so great about sports is you can't fake it. Yeah. And so eventually you get revealed. And so I work in the world of like the one percenters. I work with those people who are like, look, like I'm pretty close. I'm like, I'm either in the pros making millions of dollars and I want the next contract or I'm pretty close to making that, or I've got a chance for a scholarship for college. So I'm looking for that um, competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. And so if they're doing the right things, then they're going to step on the court and they're going to feel more confidence. If they know they're not doing the right things, then deep down inside, they're going to have that insecurity. So what would be an example of the right thing? Well, here's one. Uh, the phone is never in the bed, so it's not your alarm clock. And if it is your alarm clock, it's across like the room on a bookshelf or on a dresser or something where you got to get up and, and, and get out of bed to go turn it off. You can actually, I tell kids, you can buy an, actually, you can buy an alarm clock, right? Yeah. It's your, you can buy an alarm clock, but charge it away from the bed. If you're a parent of young kids, I say family charging station, master bedroom, far side, nine o'clock every night, every kid's electronic is there. Right. I love it. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening is, well, how am I going to fall asleep? Okay. Here's the next best practice. You do this. You're going to have more confidence on the court. I want everybody to read a book for pleasure, right? Like something that you're just going to read before you go to bed at night. And people say, oh, man, I'll read books. Why, well, why, why don't you read these books? These are good things. Well, right. every time I read a book, I fall asleep. Ta-da! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're telling me you're lying in bed at night. You're so stressed you can't fall asleep while you're looking at your phone. But if you read a book, you'll fall asleep right away. Yes. <laughs> there it is. Ding, oh, ding, now, ding. Yeah. Now you have the confidence because you got – eight hours of sleep compared to six and a half hours of sleep because you waste an hour and a half on your phone. So now you've got more confidence because now you're starting to do the best practices. And and, so- and let me, let me just interject because there is going to be somebody out there who hears read a book before bed and they're going to put the sports site book in their kid's head or the, you know, how do I get better in five weeks book in their kid's head. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fantasy, you know, the classics, the the beach read, whatever that, yeah. Whatever it may be, they can read Harry Potter, but the point is, like, it's a skill. Yeah. And now, is it the solution? No, but it's 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 1%. And if you just, you know, do this, it's like, all right, well, that's, that's 1% better than my opponent. Okay. And if I keep going down the road and put 10 more of these in your 
mental toolbox, I call it, then you're stepping on the court and you're like, wow, I know I'm better than that person because one, I got more sleep than they did. Yeah. And that's 1% confidence right there. And then we keep doing these techniques and eventually athletes will step on and be like, yeah, I'm in a far better place emotionally than they are. And so I'm going to have more success in the long haul. Okay. So I love the book reading thing, um, getting the sleep. So what else goes in that mental toolbox for them to get ready to, to practice or compete at their highest level, highest and best level? Yeah. Great question. Um, one technique is the, the confidence script. You know, a lot of times people forget about how far they've come or how good they are. So the confidence script is a list of seven to 10 facts about your journey in tennis. And it might start off with confidence fact number one, uh, I've been playing tennis for over 10 years. Okay, that's fact. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, I've logged over, you know, X number of hours of practice on the court. Uh, I've dedicated uh, this over blank number of hours to tennis in totality, including uh, practices, uh, watching on television, uh, doing some nutrition work, sports psychology work, lifting work, right? And so if you just keep going through a list of seven to 10 facts, eventually you might realize like, damn, I'm pretty good. <laughs> right? I didn't realize yeah. the numbers uh, were so significant. You know, put the like, greatest achievements. You might say things like, I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm faster than I've ever been before, stronger than I've ever been before. Uh, and so if a person can recite that confidence script every time they step on the court, right? If they can have it taped, uh, printed out, taped, and it's on a locker, if they can make take a screenshot of it every time they they unlock their phone, boom, there's a confidence script. They're going to see that. So I want them to be able to recite it forwards, backwards, know it inside and out. But that is a really important confidence boost, and it's one technique that goes a long way. How young do you recommend that? somebody start doing that. I love that idea, by the way. Yeah, generally 13 is like, okay. when are they really ready for sports psychology? Like 13, it gets kind of competitive. I mean, uh, one study showed like 7% of all athletes stop playing sports by age 13. Yeah. Uh, typically the biggest reason is the overbearing father figure in the car who's emotionally traumatizing them. The worst rated sports memory is the car ride home with dad from practice or a game. And so 13 is when you got to pick your sport typically year round. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the age where it's like, okay, now we really need the mental side of it. Anything under 13 is generally more like, just give me the parent because it's really not the kid. <laughs> and I don't want the, all the dads to take the rap here because we know they're overbearing tennis moms as well as overbearing tennis dads. And uh, yeah, so they're, they're out there. The you mom- can blame the dads because you're a dad, but I got to I gotta uh, stick up for them a little bit. You can stick up for them because we all hear that mom. Yeah. It it creates, you know, the hairs on the back of the neck go up and she starts yelling. Yeah. Even the kids on the sideline are like, oh, boy, your mom's getting a little fired up right now. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's like I watched one mom. She just marched right out there on the soccer field and she was about ready to give it to the ref. And it was like, oh, my goodness. Like that is old. Yeah. And so, oh, it's it's both. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so I, I love this toolbox idea, and and I'm visualizing this in my head and how the kids can can kind of unpack this and take it with them as as they approach or practice or a competition. Um, 
I, and I also, cause I'm a big proponent of every time you step on the court, focus on getting 1% better. You're giving us other ways to get 1% better, not just improving your forehand and backhand. Right. And so I love that. Yeah. I mean, my whole philosophy is clear mind, better performance. And so the clearer the mind is the body will respond. And so, yeah, I mean, it's really important to work on your forehand. But it's more important to help that person process the breakup that they're going through with their boyfriend or girlfriend and how that emotion is really going to impact that forehand. Mm-hmm. So their mind's not clear. Their performance isn't better. And most often we just talk about performance, 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 outcome, score, achievement, results, practice. And nobody's saying, here's the next technique. Mm-hmm. How you yeah. really, like, how, how are you really doing? Like, I, like, I want to know, like, how are you really feeling? And too often, kids will be like, no one's ever, no one's really even asked me that. Right. And, like, and like, in a way that they actually wanted to know. But when you actually really, really square your shoulders, look, look at a kid in the eye and say, how are you really holding up, man? Wow. And if you are willing to have that conversation with them, you can really clear their mind. And I did this for a young girl and her dad the other day. And, and, uh, you know, the tears f- started flowing and, and, uh, she just needed to experience catharsis, which is a freeing of emotion, have somebody validate her feelings, mm-hmm. uh, give her a technique or two, uh, empathize with her, encourage her a little bit. And within 20 minutes she lit up and she was smiling. She's happy and she's on her way. Yeah. And so how did I improve her performance? Just do that. But that's exactly what we're not typically doing. But that's really the role of a sports psychologist or if parents want to like just play amateur sports psychologists can can do a better job with that. I remember and I've told this story before when I took my oldest to college and the, the students were in an orientation session and the parents were in a separate orientation session. And the, the leader of the session said to all of us, you're going to get the phone call where your kid is crying, upset, scared, angry, and telling you they hate school, they want to come home, this is happening, that's happening, and you're going to hear all of this, and your anxiety level is going to build and build and build and build, and you're going to hang up the phone and feel like you've got to book that plane ticket to go rescue your kid or hop in the car and go rescue your kid. But what's happening with your kid is as soon as they hang up the phone, they're like, whew, glad I got that off my chest. Okay, let's go on to the next. Right. So we as parents have I think it's it's important for what you just said for us to hear that, that sometimes the kids just need to say it out loud and it may not make us feel great, but it's really cathartic and helpful for them. It's is exactly what the kid needs. And ironically, you're pointing that out because Greg Strobel, um, former United States Olympic wrestling coach, wonderful friend, uh, passed away uh, during the pandemic. He said to me, you know, one of the best pieces of advice, which we've maybe all have heard, is like, you know, is a parent uh, preparing the kid for the path or preparing the path for the kid? And so yeah. that parent is like, let me get the plane tickets. Like, all right, you're just trying to prepare the path for the kid. And it's like, no, like kids need to struggle. They need adversity. They need to develop resiliency. They need to develop emotional regulation skills. And so if we could help them learn to deal with the emotional, 
uh, aspects, uh, even just through giving them opportunity to experience catharsis, that's a really big deal. Right. Because the reality is there will come a time where tennis is over at, at the highest level, right? Hopefully they'll continue playing for fun, but, but they're going to continue to be a human being (laughs) and they're going to continue to have to learn to function in the world and communicate all these things. And, and so these are the skills, these lifelong skills that yes, tennis may be the vehicle for it, but these are skills they need throughout their life. And yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, sports is just a metaphor for life, right? It's a microcosm. I said that in a CNN interview the other day. Sports is just a microcosm for life. And yeah. and um, it's really true. And here's one of the best things, the skills that they could develop and learn. And since this is obviously parenting aces, right? Like for parents and their, for, the, for the tennis player, I ask every parent and every athlete and I ask them together this. What's your hobby? I mean, what do you like to do outside of uh, school, outside of tennis? Like, what do you like to do for fun? Not working out, nothing like that. Just not an electronic, just purely like a hobby, something for fun. And too often, pre-pandemic, people are like, uh, uh, I don't have time for like a hobby. Like, it's all about go, 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 go. And hence why there's anxiety. And the pandemic really forced us to really pick up a hobby, do something for fun, you know, just kind of develop an outlet to let out tension, right? Love that. Right. And parents oftentimes just say, well, I don't have time. I'm just working and then I'm just taking my kid all over the place. So I don't, I don't even model it to my kid that I'm having a hobby because I don't. But therein lies where catharsis is important and freeing of repressed emotion. We need an outlet to let out the tension and so what hobby does each kid do and how do we validate, support that, encourage that, and still keep that post-pandemic into the calendar so it doesn't get sacrificed? And then here's the key. Tennis is over. And what does the mom and the tennis player talk about once yes. they talk about tennis? And too often the answer is, uh, we don't really have a whole lot in common. And it's like uh, one college player, I, uh, wrestler, I remember talking to him. We walked out of practice together and go get some dinner and talk. And his phone rang and he looked at his phone and he's like, oh, like, what's the matter? He's like, that's my dad. Every time you, I get out of practice, he wants to call and find out and talk about it. And then uh, he's like, that's all he talks to me about. Mm-hmm. And the further along an athlete goes, the less they actually want to talk about their sport. They won't talk about anything else but their sport. And so it's very important for every parent uh, to have a hobby that they do with their kid purely for fun, not achievement, not competition, just purely for fun. And if they can have that themselves, if they can have it with their kid, that's a lifelong bond that would have the emotional connectedness, the intimacy that would help them to have a good relationship way beyond tennis. And it can even be another sport, right? I mean, no, you, no, oh, no it can't. No, 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 Because okay. no. then it's like, oh, now we're just going to compete in golf. It's like, <laughs> no, stop. Like, uh, it could be arts, right? Okay, maybe okay, okay. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's traveling. Maybe it's watching funny movies together. Maybe they're in a book club together. Maybe it's a Bible study they're doing together. But like anything where it's not just let me take my competitive mindset <laughs> and just put it over here. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. I'll I'll conclude by saying this. 
every athlete should be an artist, is what I say, because art makes you visualize, right? It's catharsis. It helps you deal with that negative junk in your head of, well, I'm a terrible, I'm ter- terrible, right? So you get positive thinking. And so if, if a parent's listening to this, if an athlete's listening to this, like, well, Jerry, what should I do? Every athlete should be an artist. I love it. All right. Dr. Jared Spencer, you are awesome. If parents want to learn more about your work and maybe get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? And we will share this in information in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, obviously I'm a little bit biased, but yes, like most people, like I have the book. And so there it is. Yep. Mind of the athlete, clear mind, better performance. And so that's my best way of putting the tools right in the toolbox of the parent and the athlete is to say, here's the book. And that's my best way I can impact somebody right now who's listening. Like, what could they do? Sure. They can listen to the 500 uh, YouTube videos that are out there and all these podcasts and such. Uh, but really, I think the book, Mind of the Athlete, the website, Mind of the Athlete, and all the social media, Mind of the Athlete, is going to be the best next step for somebody listening, how they can get connected with me. Love it. Dr. Jared Spencer, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And to my listeners and viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, buy a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.